0: Well, the little history behind that hymn put some context to it, right? Are you suffering? Are you going through hardship? I mean, the writer had tuberculosis, was dying, and yet he sings out, praise the Lord. While you're standing, if you can grab your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. And as we are turning there to Hebrews chapter 2, we continue to praise the Lord and we are thankful for your prayers and As many of you have seen, our beloved Elder Mark and his bride Ruth Ann are with us today, so we praise the Lord for healing him and caring for him and restoring him to us, so praise the Lord. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the Word of God reads, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Here ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to pay attention to your word, that you would redirect us by your love, that you would draw us by your grace and that you would teach us, O oh Lord, by your spirit. May your will be done in the going forth of your word this morning. And it is in your son's holy name that we pray, amen. Please be seated, beloved. Caution, beware, alert, danger, warnings are meant to prevent harm. Some of you think, well, yeah, they're also meant to prevent lawsuits as well. <laughs> kind of like on the coffee cup that says caution contents are hot. Like you didn't know the hot coffee that you ordered actually has hot coffee within that cup. But in general, <laughs> warnings are meant to prevent harm. They are Things that we are grateful for, we are thankful for warnings. Things like driving your car and being oblivious to how much gas you have in that car, you are thankful when that warning light comes on and says that you are nearing empty. I mean, we're thankful for smoke alarms in our house that would warn us of a potential fire. And as a big man, I am thankful for the warnings of a weight restriction when going to a zip line park. You can think of the dangers there. We can go on and on about various warnings, but the most valuable warnings, the most important warnings, have to do with eternal matters. This morning, we're going to study the first warning passage that we find in the book of Hebrews. The title of this morning's sermon is Pay Close Attention. For those of you that are note takers and you like to write down the points and the titles of the points, point number one, Pay close attention. And that's it. Pay close attention. We start in Hebrews chapter 2 as we just read, but everything that he says in Hebrews chapter 2 is based upon his argument in Hebrews chapter 1. And right out of the gate, the author of Hebrews begins to argue about the supremacy of Christ. He speaks of Christ being the prophet, the priest, and the king. That as prophet, he is God's true messenger, and he reveals God to us. And as priest, he offers himself for our sins, and he cleanses us. And as king, he is reigning now in heaven, and he rules over us as sovereign Lord. The author had argued in chapter 1, about angels and the worship of angels. He was war- arguing against those who had esteemed the angels because they had mediated the law of God. But instead, he says, look to the Son of God. The Son of God is the radiance of the glory of God, that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. And he argued that as the Son, he is superior to, than the angels, because he is the sole mediator of the new covenant. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 5 and 6, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So based upon his argument in the opening of Hebrews, of pointing to the Son and the supremacy of Christ, he now begins chapter 2 with the word therefore. Now many of you know that we need to study the Bible within context. And so many will rightly argue that the most, the three most important hermeneutical tasks to rightly understand God's word. One, note takers ready? Context. Two, you know, context, and three, context. You have the immediate context, looking within that current book or that letter that you're reading and studying. But then you have the broad context of the entirety of all Scripture. And then you have the historical context, that within the time and space of the original hearers. And so the original recipients, as many of you that have been here as we've begun the study, that you know that there are a group of Christian Jews, And they were struggling with the challenges and the sufferings of following Christ. And if you've been a Christian for any time, you know that it comes along with challenges and sufferings. We know this. And the temptation for that original audience, the recipients of this letter, was to depart from following Christ and to turn back to Judaism. And we know this letter that is penned by this author is is a word of exhortation. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22, he says so. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You see, his intent, his purpose is to embolden the believers in their belief in the gospel His efforts are focused on stirring their holy affections for Christ. This is such an example for us even today. As you see somebody who is struggling, what do you do? What do you say? Stir their affections for Christ. Point them to Jesus. And that is what he is doing in this letter. He begins right out of the gate pointing to Christ, that he is the son of God and that he is superior to angels. He expressed the fact that God now speaks through his Son, that it's Jesus who reveals God to us. That entire argument is upon the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of him being the Son, and that's what lays foundation to this entire letter and to this word of exhortation. And so in our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, We see the first of five warning passages in this letter. The others are found in chapters 3 and 6 and 10 and 12. And by God's grace, even though we're almost home, if we're still here, we will studying through those passages. But for this morning, we have the first one. But so you know, these warning passages in this letter, they get progressively stronger throughout the letter. This morning, we see a warning about drifting, but the final one is about defying. They get stronger and stronger. And the author begins this warning in chapter two, and he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. The author here momentarily changes directions from his exposition of Christ to confronting his audience about their responsibility. Notice also that he switches to the first person plural pronoun, we. He says we. His exhortation is directly to the Christian community. He's not speaking to unbelievers and encouraging sinners to become Christians. He is speaking to believers and he's exhorting them to pay attention to the great salvation that they have received from the Lord. As a means of his grace, God uses his word in the lives of believers to work out endurance and perseverance within them. And this is what he's doing with the author of Hebrews. He's helping them to endure through his word. So look again at verse 1 of chapter 2. We see we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We know that the Son took on flesh and he dwelt among us. And when he came and walked the earth, he preached the gospel. Mark chapter 1 verse 15 said Jesus says this the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel Again we read in Matthew chapter 9 verse 35 We read that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction now keep this in mind this morning as we study this text, that Jesus came preaching the gospel. And looking back at your Bible, starting at the latter half of verse 3 and into verse 4, the author of Hebrews writes, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Again, the gospel was first declared by our Lord. The author again points back to the very opening of his letter as he speaks of Jesus speaking. As he opened his letter, if you look back, maybe a page in your Bible, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The gospel was first delivered by Jesus. And to the author and to the original audience of Hebrews, they did not hear it from the mouth of Jesus. The gospel was confirmed to them to be true by those who did hear it directly from the mouth of Jesus. And we see that the apostles, they also attested to what Jesus said and passed it along faith to faith through the succeeding generation. But to give even greater assurance to the validity of the original witnesses, God testified to the truth of the gospel by signs, wonders, and miracles. God had not simply spoken a word of confirmation. He acted in these signs, wonders, and miracles to give testimony to the gospel's validity. Not only did they receive the word from the Son of God, but that word was confirmed by the apostolic miracles. This phrase, signs and miracles, is found 11 times in the New Testament. In our text, it refers to the miracles that testified to the Word and gave confirmation that it was true. These miracles performed by Jesus and the apostles. And there were also spiritual gifts that were given to believers to be used within the local congregation. All of these as witnesses... to verify, to validate the gospel of Jesus Christ. But unlike 2,000 years ago when the gospel began to be proclaimed and needed the additional witness of signs, wonders, and miracles, today we have the completed word of God. Praise God. And so there is no longer any need for these signs, miracles, and wonders Since God now bears witness through his spirit by using his word, the sign gifts have now ceased. But remember, this letter was written nearly 2,000 years ago. And the author points his hearers to what they had heard. What did they hear? These Jewish believers had heard the gospel of salvation it is this very gospel that the author of Hebrews warns about drifting away from. The gospel is of utmost importance. The gospel. In chapter 9 of the letter of Hebrews, in this letter of Hebrews, the author writes that it is appointed for man to die once. Now, this is not a, a matter of faith. But it's a plain reality that everyone dies. The reality is that one day, you will die. One day, I will die. But what happens when we die, what happens next, is of great consequence. The writer of Hebrews goes on beyond simply observing that all die. And he says that after death comes judgment. According to Jesus and what Jesus taught, the words of Jesus recorded in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Jesus taught that on this great day of judgment, that Jesus himself will sit on the throne of majestic glory and he will gather all the nations before him. And he will separate the people into just two categories. There will be the righteous and the unrighteous. And the righteous, he will usher them into God's eternal kingdom. While the wicked will be cast into eternal fire that's been prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, this is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus teaching in Matthew 25. But going beyond and looking further into the scriptures, the Bible clearly teaches that all mankind fell into a state of sin, of condemnation, and that death through the sin of their first father came through Adam. Within every person is the powerful bias towards evil and rebellious disposition towards God. It's out of this corrupt nature that mankind rebels against a holy God and does what is right in their own eyes. They sin against a holy, righteous, and just God. And due to their sin, mankind is utterly unfit for heaven, where the standard of goodness and the standard of holiness is not other humans, but God himself. He is the standard. And God speaks through His word, and He declares that His wrath hangs over all sinners. And at the point of death, His wrath will come crashing down upon them. This is what God declares, that's what He warns. But what Jesus preached was the gospel. Jesus preached the good news. And the gospel, beloved, is amazing. God's gracious provision of salvation is available to those very same sinners. They didn't have to get cleaned up. They didn't have to do better. They turned to Christ and trusted in Him. Listen to the angel's announcement to Joseph concerning the birth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. The angel said, She will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Hallelujah. God's saving mercy centers on the person of the incarnate Son of God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus said. Or excuse me, listen to what Jesus did on behalf of sinners who trust him. He lived a perfect life under God's law on their behalf. He died a cruel death on the cross, receiving in that death the outpoured wrath of God upon himself in their place and on their behalf. And immediately, before he dismissed his spirit and died upon that cross, he cried out one incredible word, to telestai, meaning it is finished in, in crying out to telestai Jesus was declaring that everything necessary to provide a righteous forgiveness and a just pardon for sinners had been accomplished in his perfect life of obedience and his substitutionary death for sinners and 3 days later He rose from the grave to validate his claims that he had accomplished redemption for his people. So every person that repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ enjoys the blessings of this amazing salvation. Those who have repented have turned away from rebelling against God and towards obeying God. In believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, they have forsaken all hope and confidence in anything they have done or have not done to try to make themselves right in God's sight. In believing, they cast themselves upon Jesus Christ and his finished work of salvation. It is upon genuine repentance and belief that they are now clothed In his righteousness. And will stand as righteous before God on judgment day. And they will be ushered into God's eternal kingdom. The impending judgment of being cast into hell is now gone. They are now Christ forevermore. Never to be forsaken by God. This is the gospel. That Jesus alone is Savior that he alone saves people from sin's penalty, from sin's power, and ultimately from sin's presence. We're not only rescued from the eternity of hell, we are rescued from our own carnality and our worldliness now. Listen to the way A.W. Pink comments on this. A.W. Pink said, Quote, the nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misrepresented by the present day evangelist. He announces a savior from hell rather than a savior from sin. And that is why so many are fatally deceived. For there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire, who have no desire to be delivered from their carnality and worldliness. End quote. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It delivers us from that worldliness oh the beauty and the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ and if you are here this morning and you have never responded to the gospel with genuine repentance and faith now is the time tomorrow was promised to no man you're to turn to Christ now you're to trust in his finished work now you're to believe the gospel And wholeheartedly trust in it. The gospel. It is this gospel that I just spoke of. That the writer of Hebrews is referring to in verse 1 of chapter 2. When he writes, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. It's this gospel. By the way, the gospel is for believers. It's not just for unbelievers. Don't ever get in your mind that, oh, the gospel, I wish so-and-so was here today to hear that. If you're a believer here, that is to stir your holy affections for Christ, that you would pay much closer attention to the gospel, that you put your mind back on the gospel. It's for believers. It reminds us that we are needy recipients of God's grace. The Gospel, it testifies to our complete dependency on God. The gospel demands our humility before God. The gospel encourages our obedience to God. The gospel strengthens our resolve to endure sufferings. And this is why the writer of Hebrews points them back to the gospel. But you must pay close attention. It is this very same gospel that the Apostle Paul was speaking of when he writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's this very same gospel that the writer of Hebrews warns against drifting away from. And he warns against the impending discipline of God. For those who do drift. In verses two, back in your Bibles in Hebrews chapter two, verses two on to the beginning of verse three in our text, we see as the author warns and he says, starting in verse two, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation, it's in these verses that he's explaining why we must not drift away from the gospel. He uses a tool from rabbinic hom- homiletics in which he argues from the lesser to the greater. And so he first argues about the old covenant that everyone who defied or disregarded the law of God faced a just retribution. And we know from the Old Testament and see in Scripture that oftentimes such actions led to death. Now, if the punishment was so strong with that which was delivered by angels, how much worse would it be for those who defy or disregard the message that was delivered by Jesus the Son? That's the argument he's making. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, R. Kent Hughes he comments here and says, quote "It is more blameworthy to sin against love than against law, to ignore God's mercy than to break his law. There is no escape if we ignore such a great salvation end quote." Calvin also comments here. John Calvin said, It is not only the rejecting of the gospel, but even the neglecting of it that deserves the severest penalty in view of the greatness of the grace which is offered in it, end quote. Neglecting it. Drifting from it. So what is the the author of, of Hebrews doing? He's simply saying this, Listen up! Wake up! It's a warning, and it's a warning that's in love. He's saying this is vital. It is of utmost importance. It is a matter of life and death. Pay close attention. The gospel is the only way unto salvation. Look again with me at verse 1, where he starts this warning this is, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This word drift, it's a nautical word. It's a sailing word. It has in mind a ship whose anchor has broken loose from the ocean floor and is dangerously drifting away. And drifting here in this context is a reference to those who have professed Christ in the past, but now are in danger of losing sight of the gospel. You know, drifting is not an intentional act. It results from being inattentive. I mean, think about it. We go to the beach and if you spend more time just floating in the water at the beach, instead of working against the current, you'll find that you have drifted far from where you originally started. Those of you younger ones in here that go out to the beach and go, I can't find where my parents are now because you have drifted when you were in the water. But when you do this spiritually, you end up asking yourself the question, how did I get here? How did I get here? Christianity is not a cruise control faith. It's an active pursuit of Christ that is fueled by the love of Christ and is empowered by the spirit of Christ. But think about what we hear all around us around us as as lovers of self, our our fallen world endorses a me-first mindset. You hear people say things like, well, I always focused on loving others, but now I'm focused on loving myself, to which the audience erupts in applause. Or you hear another one say, I am putting me first for once in my life. And once again, the audience erupts in cheering. Perhaps you have even muttered these words. Perhaps after some suffering and some hardships, you've decided, I want to do the same. I want to put me first. Well, at that point, you have succumbed to this worldly mantra, and you've allowed your heart to drift from focusing on Christ to focusing on yourself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we read, Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Sounds like a self-focus. It's all about me. And by the way, when you... Drift from the gospel of Jesus Christ, and your focus drifts all the way to where it's entirely focused on you, there is a downward spiral that ensues. Suffering in this world often leads and challenges us to keep focused upon Christ. But instead, the easy way is to focus on self, to focus on our selfish feelings of how we feel in the midst of the suffering. I feel pain, or I feel hurt, or I feel unimportant. Now, the original recipients of this letter of Hebrews, they were enduring hardship. And perhaps some of you this morning are enduring hardship right now. Drifting happens slowly. It is subtle. But once your focus is on yourself instead of upon Christ, drifting begins to take place. It's because of the hardships that these the original audience they were enduring these hardships and they were trying to follow Christ, but these Jewish believers were tempted. Let's let's abandon this, let's leave the gospel, let's let's turn back. Let's look to Judaism. Let's look to angels. Their desire was to fix their eyes on something that would be easier for them. There wouldn't be the same challenges, the same hardships. You know, the road of the world, it's easy. Everybody's swimming that way. It's easy to go with them. But to go upstream, you need God's help. You need to cry out to him. Always. And so, the original hearers were tempted to look to something easier. But the issue was not Christ. It was not who he is. The issue is that they began focusing on themselves instead of Christ. Sinclair Ferguson said this, quote, Yes, apostasy happens. Sometimes the catalyst is flagrant sin. The pain of conviction and repentance is refused. And the only alternative... To it is wholesome rejection of Christ. But sometimes the catalyst is a thorn growing quietly in the heart, an indifference to the way of the cross, a drifting that is, if not reversed, will lead to destruction. The world around us promotes esteeming self. The Bible. Our Lord Jesus says exactly the opposite. I mean, they're not even close to maybe going the same direction. We're talking they collide head on. Let me remind you of our Lord's words in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He said to the crowd, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Pick up his cross daily and follow me. That doesn't go in line with the world's teaching. It's a far cry from the world's approach. Deny yourself. Endure suffering, meaning bearing your cross. And follow Christ. Keep your eyes upon him. Beloved, following Christ does include enduring hardship it's a life of denying self it's a life of carrying a cross by the way a cross in context was not a chain a medallion or some kind of symbol you wore on your neck it was a symbol of death that as the apostle paul said i die daily that that would be our walk that we die to our selfish ambition and our selfish pursuits moment by moment throughout the day So then what is the antidote for drifting? You must pay close attention to what you've heard. This is what the author says here, that you must pay close attention to the gospel. This word must, he says you must do this. It means to be under the necessity of happening. It is necessary. One has to do this. It's not one of the words that equates to one of the triplets of procrastination. You know, the shoulda, woulda, and coulda. This word refers to something that must be done. It has to be done. We must pay closer attention to the gospel. This word he uses here, to pay, it means to hold firmly, to continue to believe. In other words, he's saying it is vital for every believer to hold the gospel firmly. F.F. Bruce comments here and says, quote, The truth and teaching of the gospel must not be held lightly. There are matters of life and death and must be cherished and obeyed at all costs. The danger of dr- drifting away from them and so losing them cannot be treated too gravely, End quote. Drifting, that's the warning that we have in this first warning passage in Hebrews is about drifting away from the gospel of grace and the impending discipline that comes from God as a result from it. And so let's ask ourselves some questions, like, like how do we know if we are drifting? Like, how, how can we identify in our own lives that we've begun to neglect such a great salvation? Well, Richard Owen Roberts is helpful. He proposes 20 ways, and I will not give you all 20. I'll give you a handful of them. You know you are drifting if prayer ceases to be a vital part of your life. You know you're drifting if biblical knowledge is not applied inwardly. You know you're drifting if thoughts are predominantly earthly and not heavenward. You know that you are drifting if the church service loses its delight. You know that you are drifting if sins can be committed without any violation of the conscience. You know that you are drifting if aspirations for Christ-like holiness cease to dominate your life and thinking. You know that you are drifting if religious songs can be mouthed without engaging the heart. You know you're drifting if breaches of peace in the church are of no concern. You know you're drifting if personal sins are pardoned by a belief that the Lord understands. That probably gives us enough to to use right there, but there's more. I'm going to shift from, from him. I'm going to go to Horatius Bonar, the 19th century Scottish pastor and hymn writer. He proposes these are four things that you need to identify in your own life and see, and if they're there, then you are drifting Losing your first love. That the affections for Christ are dull and blunted. Secondly, he says, losing the edge of your conscience. The conscience ceases to, ceases to be sensitive and tender. It does not shrink back from sin as it used to. Thirdly, he says, callousness as to truth. Truth that you get so familiarized with truth that it ceases to affect you. It loses its power over you. And fourthly, he says, insensibility to sin. Much like Richard Owen Roberts said, that your own evils are not felt as they used to be. Sin itself is not so hated and shunned as it formerly was. As noted, drifting is often accompanied by sin. And oftentimes it begins with private sin. J.C. Ryle said, quote, men fall in private long before they fall in public, end quote. If you're not the same person in public as you are in private, you are drifting. So what does your Christianity look like inside your home? Not testimony time for you to come up and tell the church, but I have some questions. Because oftentimes the home is the private space where sin will be first evident. And so to the children. <laughs> to the children, are you regularly obeying your parents? Are you demonstrating love to your siblings? Are you hiding things from your parents? Because the warning is beware from drifting to those who are married. What does your marriage look like inside of your home? Is Christ being honored? Are you humbly serving one another? Are you bearing with one another? Are you forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you? Is love covering a multitude of sin in your home? Because if not, you are drifting. And to those who are single, what does your singleness look like? Are you glorifying God in your singleness or are you using it as an excuse for sin? Are you demonstrating self-control in your desires and your contentment? Beware of drifting. And regardless of marital status. If you find it easy to disobey God and forsake gathering regularly on Sundays for corporate worship, you are drifting. It has been rightly said, quote, an avoidable absence from church is an infallible evidence of spiritual decay. Another evidence of drifting is a critical spirit. J.C. Ryle said, quote, there is no sure marker of falling off in grace than an increasing disposition to find fault, to pick holes, and to see weak points in others. If you are readily pointing out others' faults, but not regularly recognizing and confessing your own sin, you are drifting. If you're more concerned about being right than you are about being righteous, You are drifting. As you could tell, we can keep going. But I'm sure enough has been said about the signs of drifting. And perhaps some of the ones spoken this morning have caught your attention. And so the question is, now what? Now, Now what are we to do? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us in that opening verse, you must pay close attention. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Paying careful attention to the gospel is the divinely prescribed antidote to to drifting. And so what does that mean and what does that look like? It means that, beloved, you must focus on the greatness of Christ. It means that you need to continue to marvel at the atonement It means that you must preach the gospel to yourself. Look, if the gospel is before you, sin is behind you. There is no reservation for sin for those who are delighting in Christ. Spurgeon said this, quote, remember that if you are a child of God and you, let me say that again, (laughs) remember that you are a child of God, you will never be happy in sin, You are spoiled for the world, the flesh, and the devil. When you were regenerated, there was put into you a vital principle which can never be content to dwell in the dead world. You will have to come back if indeed you belong to the family. End quote. And so I want to close by making you familiar with Robert Robert Robinson and tell you a bit about his life. Robert Robinson, say that three times fast. Wow, it wasn't so hard when I was typing it, but man, it sure is hard to say it out loud. Robert Robinson, the composer of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. He was converted under the mighty preaching of George Whitefield. Robinson was later used greatly as a pastor, but began neglecting spiritual things. He began drifting, which led him astray And he drifted from the Lord. In an attempt to find peace, he began to travel. And during one of his journeys, he met a young woman. And while flipping through a hymn book, she turned and asked, What do you think of this hymn I've been reading? As she handed him the hymn book, it was his own hymn. He tried to avoid her question, but it was hopeless, for the Lord was ministering to him. Finally, he broke down and confessed who he was and how he had been living away from the Lord. And she turned to him and said, but these streams of mercy are still flowing. She assured him with these words and through her encouragement, Robinson was restored to fellowship with the Lord. If you have drifted and you can see that you have drifted, pay close attention to the gospel. Christ welcomes you to come to Him. It means turn from living for self and turn to Christ. It means deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. Before I close in prayer this morning, let's bow our heads and take a quiet moment to reflect on what we've heard and perhaps even quietly respond to the Lord in it. Father, thank you for the glorious gospel. Thank you for your word that speaks to us today. Thank you for graciously giving us warnings to fuel our endurance in following Christ. I pray for each of us here this morning that we would run to Christ, that we would turn from all selfish ambition and humble ourselves before our Lord and Savior. Thank you that he is gentle and lowly, and that he delights when we turn to him. Help us, O God, to pay close attention to the gospel, to preach it to ourselves daily, that we might always walk worthy of the cross of Christ. It's in his matchless name that we pray. Amen.